Hello again, and welcome to today's broadcast of Practically Political, where pragmatists talk politics. I'm Dave Spencer, and we have another special show today as I sit down with our executive producer, Paul Gilbert, to discuss the latest events and issues in Washington. So where do you want to start? Well, let's talk about the government shutdown. So how do you see them negotiating out of this stalemate, especially when one of the biggest obstacles towards any kind of compromise is a total lack of trust on both sides? To me, this is the Seinfeld of shutdowns. It was about nothing. And what I mean by that is that everyone's in favor of a wall. Okay, the question is, what kind of wall? Every president built a real wall over certain parts of the border because it makes sense. Those, bo- those parts of the border have been sealed. So what the president is proposing would require eminent domain. So again, I think the key is you make it mostly a smart wall, which is what everyone's really for anyway, and then you put in some physical element. Then the president can say that he got his 21st century wall updated. The Democrats can say that they held firm and we, we move on. So we've talked about this before. The real, we're talking about a virtual wall and using, you know, modern technology, 21st century technology, and also more immigration judges, more border control, and especially better security at the checkpoints where most of the drugs flow into this country. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons this wall debate is so silly. 90% of drugs come through legal points of entry. And more than 60% of people who are, quote, illegals are legal immigrants who overstay their visas. So even if you could make a perfectly impervious wall, you'd only deal with barely half the problem. Whether it's border security or a smart wall, everyone wants a a more well-secured border. The question is how we're going to do it. The president, because you have to remember, he's president of his base, not the United States. So he was convinced that he was his base is going to leave him if he didn't stick to the hard things. So as long as there's something, he's a simple man. If there's something in his mind that counts even as 100 feet of a wall, he could claim victory. We want a 21st century border. The president wants a 20th century border. So one dominant theme in this struggle is the White House seems to be out of touch with the reality that the Democrats drubbed them in the midterms and now have a way to check and stymie this administration. And Nancy Pelosi understands hardball politics and the art of the deal far better than Donald Trump. The State of the Union tug of war underscores, you know, her ability to use her power and defy the president. And that is a dynamic that the White House just doesn't seem to get. Well, it's a dynamic in many ways that that the president doesn't seem to have ever gotten. He couldn't understand how Jeff Sessions could recuse himself. He's my lawyer. He's not the country's lawyer. He couldn't understand how violating a deal with a country that was following the agreement and has never had nuclear weapons might weaken your position with a country that's never followed an agreement and has always had nuclear weapons for the last few years. But again, he just couldn't see the connection. I think when you're dealing with this president, you have to give him something that he can then take to his base. Let's talk about the BuzzFeed article about Michael Cohen reportedly saying Donald Trump directed him to lie to Congress about Trump being involved in negotiations with Russia over a Trump Tower deal up to at least Election Day in 2016. There was an interesting piece in the Times by Frank Bruni where he postulated that Trump never expected or even wanted to win the election and that his campaign was a marketing venture 
And that's why he didn't want to put business on hold. Let me just quote from that article. This presidency and its shortcomings make complete sense. Trump couldn't assemble and manage a top-notch cabinet because he's never rated himself for that task. He couldn't let go of any of the engines of his wealth because he'd never prioritized public service above it. He couldn't say what the country needed him to say after the violence in Charlottesville because he had no interest in the role of statesman and had never intended to play it. Rare is the person who finds a whole new skill set at his stage of the game, and rarer still is the person who finds a whole new set of principles. Well, that's particularly hard if you've never had any principles to start with. <laughs> and again, as we've always said, Donald Trump is amoral, not immoral. That's why, in some ways, you, there's, he has a, a freedom and, and insouciance, because when you're not moored by the truth, you can just say whatever you want. That's why he'll still say something, even, it's been, even after it's been disproven. So, Dave, switching topics, let's talk Democratic presidential candidates. I like them both. <laughs> It's more like, I like them all. The first question might be, who's not running? And first of all, let me just say, I'm glad everybody's running. This is a crucial election for the Democrats, and I think everybody should run. And if candidates have weaknesses, they'll be weeded out. The strong candidate will emerge. Because remember, Democrats fall in love. Republicans fall in line. Who would have predicted Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton or Barack Obama two years before they were inaugurated? Let's go through the list of already declared, then likelies, then maybes. If you could just give us a quick reaction to each name. So this is like handicapping the Kentucky Derby, except dozens of horses are in the field. So in no particular order, here we go with the declared group. Just your quick take. Elizabeth Warren. Absolutely unelectable. The antithesis of what the Democrats should run in 2020. Kamala Harris. Very inexperienced, uh, again, from one of the liberal quarters, not electable. Julian Castro. Potential, but way, way too green. Kristen Gillibrand. <sighs> so you make even, a face even on worse, that one. <laughs> even worse than Elizabeth Warren. So unelectable. Now, here's an interesting one. Former Representative John Delaney, who actually had on a podcast a couple of months ago. He's someone who, because of his experience and because of his ability to self-fund, if he can get a message that can catch on, then he has a chance. But that's a big if. Tulsi Gabbard. Again, this is the relying on the being a veteran to uh, replacement for experience. I think she's way too green, and it's very hard to be elected from Hawaii to anything because it's such a one-party state. Richard Ojeda. Yes, from uh, West Virginia. Well, I don't quite get that one. Every once in a while, there's the long shot that maybe they figure the election is so out of whack that maybe they have a chance. Andrew Yang, the former tech executive who proposes universal basic income. Again, businessmen don't make very good politicians, as congressmen don't. Governors do. Peter Buttigieg, the mayor from South Bend, Indiana. He is someone who does have the right background. I think he's a little green. He's only been mayor, but he's someone who is a much less experienced, but could be someone like a Mitch Landrew, who's the former mayor of New Orleans, who I think is one of the few Democrat candidates who could win. He was also seen as a strong candidate for governor in that state, which was a little bit of a surprise, yep. instead opting to be a dark horse presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on to the likely candidates. Mm -hmm. Cory Booker. 
tries to be all things to all people. He may have his moment, but not this year. Extremely gifted orator, though. Yes, it's, and he's no one doubts his intelligence. His mayor, his record as mayor of of Newark was mixed, and I've seen a lot of again being all things to all people, but I haven't really seen like a, a core set of beliefs that you can win with as a Democratic candidate. John Hickenlooper. He's someone who I think is a very strong possibility. I would like to see the next Democratic president be a governor, because we've proved they're the best at running things, unlike businessmen or congressmen. It's because they know how to govern and they know how to work with legislatures from the other party. So here's an interesting one. Former Vice President Joe Biden. I think he should run. I think he's gaff prone. I think he's too old. I think he didn't do very well the last two times that he's, that he's run. And he also has a checkered history being from Delaware, voting for the bankruptcy bill, stuff like that. But I think he should run because he does have that working class appeal and he can bring back some of those voters that went for Trump after voting for Obama twice. Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles. He's someone that if he had the right charisma, he could do better. I just think anyone from California or New York faces an uphill battle just because they don't connect with real people. I think the next president is going to be someone who knows how real people live and someone who can get the party excited. There's got to be someone that gets Democrats riled up again. Someone they, that makes them believe again. Well, speaking of someone who got him riled up, what about Bernie Sanders? I think he is basically the, the left's version of the Tea Party. 30-something years in Congress, passed three bills. Two of them were renaming post offices. His fiscal plan was more irresponsible than even uh, <laughs> Donald Trump's. I think he's totally unelectable and the stuff that he would have done better against Trump than Hillary is hogwash. He was a blank slave. Okay, let's move on to the maybes. Yes. And we don't have enough time to go through all of them, so I just okay. picked a few top names. All right. Michael Bloomberg. He's someone in terms of how they think and their positions on stuff that I think is right on. And he's also the only person that could actually pay for his own campaign, truly. But having said that, he's such a smart guy. I think he's not running because he realizes that he can't, he couldn't win as an independent. And if he runs as a Democrat, it's going to be third party and it's going to suck votes away. So I think he's going to sit it out. Beta O'Rourke. Again, very exciting but way too green. He's been a congressman for a few years and he thinks he can run for president. These guys are just running too early. It was the same thing with people like Marco Rubio back in 2016. They're way too green. They have no experience. One interesting thing about O'Rourke is that he has used social media better than any candidate in recent history and almost beat Ted Cruz. And Also, his fundraising, grassroots fundraising, is very impressive. I agree. But you have to remember that was... Ted Cruz, even though there's 850,000 more GOP voters in Texas, which is why he won by a mere 3%, I don't think Beto O'Rourke would have had the same results if he were running, say, against John Cornyn, the other senator from Texas. I think he has potential, but again, he needs more experience. Last one in the maybes, Amy Klobuchar. Now, she is the one woman of all those senators that you talk about, you know, the Gillibrands and the Warrens and the Bookers and all those people who I think is very electable. And she has more experience. She's been in office. She has the Midwestern authenticity. So I would give her a, a decent shot. 
She had an interesting quote. She said, this is a moment for the Midwest, and we don't want to be forgotten again in a national election. Very well said. I know you're a numbers guy, Dave. In the most recent Daily Coast straw poll, Kamala Harris was leading at 27%, Elizabeth Warren at 18%, Joe Biden at 13%, Bernie Sanders at 12%, and Beto O'Rourke at 5%, which was down from 15% uh, just a couple of weeks earlier. Looks like it's going to be a long and winding road in handicapping the Democratic race for presidency. Well, all I can say is in January 2007 or January 1991 or January 1975, the people who were, who were listed as the most likely to be president, a member of that party who actually won probably wasn't even on the top 20 list. So my long-winded point is polls are meaningless at this stage. It's just a, right now. It's just it's just name recognition. It's a popularity contest. That's all it is. Are you saying that Barack Obama was not a household name? Ah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Neither was Jimmy Carter. <laughs> okay, enough with the Democrats. Let's move over to your once beloved party, the GOP. Former Ohio governor and 2016 presidential candidate, and now CNN political commentator John Kasich, recently wrote an op-ed in U.S. Today entitled. Republican Party is mired in the 1950s and ignores today's America at its peril. And I'd like to quote from it. While nearly every aspect of the world around us has been changing, sometimes with breakneck speed, and while the complexion and complexities of our demographics have shifted so dramatically, those who fancy themselves as leaders are plodding far behind the march of time. And sadly, too many Americans are content to plod along with them. The thing that I keep coming back to is that when one looks at the future of the party, what is going to remain of Trumpism after Trump? Because no matter what you thought about other presidents, at least they had a style, a governing philosophy, a set of principles. Trumpism is just a cult of personality and hate and exclusion. I know you're a supporter of John Kasich. You were during yes. the primaries and still think quite he highly of He was my of choice. Um, the last thing he said in that op-ed was, it's time for Republicans in our state capitals in Washington to get in step with the fast-moving parade. Otherwise, they'll lose, because there's one thing we've learned from parades. Anyone falling behind gets swept up by those guys who follow the horses. Your reaction? I took so much heat in 2016 for saying the best thing that could happen to our party was for Hillary to win as convincingly as possible because we've become morally bankrupt. We don't stand for anything other than a vessel for the special interest of our wealthy donors. And we have to do, as Bob Dole said, put a close for repairs sign on the national headquarter doors, look in the mirror and try to come up with things that we can stand for and try to come up with a platform and values and goals that are going to be in sync with the 21st century, particularly second half of the 21st century, when whites will be a minority in this country, to get people on board, and Latinos particularly. Dave, you uh, mentioned that the Democrats need to focus on kitchen table issues in 2020, but there's an issue that's lingering out there that the Democrats really need to claim, in my opinion, and that's climate change. Yes. There was a survey conducted by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and the George Mason University Center for Climate Change that found that about 73% of Americans believe global warming is occurring, a record high, and a jump of 10 percentage points from 2015. 
Another record, the percentage of Americans who said global warming is personally important to them was 72%, an increase of nine points. One person who doesn't seem concerned is President Trump, who mocked climate science on Twitter as winter storms battered the East and Midwest, saying, large parts of the country are suffering from tremendous amounts of snow and near record-setting cold. Wouldn't be bad to have a little of that good old-fashioned global warming right now. The president's comment is so ignorant, it's not even worth a response. It's like James Inhofe bringing a snowball in to the floor of the Senate and to show how cold it was, or Rush Limbaugh's showing us slides of blizzards. It's just, it's not even worth a response. I will say, though, the, 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 the crucial issue is the climate changing, because I think everybody agrees. Even my most diehard friends will admit that the climate is changing, my most diehard denying friends. But they still think human activity has nothing to do with it. Of course, that's the crucial second question. My response is, even if you don't believe in climate change, an anti-climate change energy policy makes so much sense because we need to get off fossil fuels anyway. We need to stop funding these petrocrat states. We need to be totally energy independent and we need cleaner air and less pollution anyway, even if the dire predictions of climate change are exaggerated. It just makes sense to pursue alternative energy. And that's where the Democrats have been wimps, is they've let the Republicans frame it as environment or efficiency, where it's really both. You know, you're talking about millions of jobs. Solar it already in, employs more people than the entire fossil fuel extraction industry. So they can tie this to infrastructure as well. Yes. And that's a key issue that it also will be on the table. It's always on the table, it seems, but there's been no I movement. think that's what the president should have done first. I've said that all along, because that, that was one of the few areas where you, had, where you had bipartisan agreement. Also, I've heard the president referring to immigration on the wall as a national crisis. But actually, a new president might say climate change is a national crisis. Yes. If you're talking about really having a reason to declare a state of emergency, that would be a much greater one. By the way, there is a crisis on the border, but it's a manufactured humanitarian crisis that the administration caused. So, Dave, lastly, we always like to throw in a little sports news and end on a positive note. Now, the real question, I think, is when is Steph Curry going to declare his candidacy for president? Boy, well, I'll tell you, there's someone who certainly has the proper temperament. He has an equanimity and he's unflappable. Yeah, maybe it should be Curry Kerr. Steve Kerr is his running mate. Curry Kerr. Sounds good, doesn't it? Mm hmm You've been listening to my conversation with Paul Gilbert, the executive producer of Practically Political. Paul, always a pleasure. Good fun, Dave. Never a dull moment in politics. So, that's it for today. I'll see you on our next round of Practically Political, where we go beyond the deluge of everyday news to dive deeper into American politics. You can also visit us at practicallypolitical.com and follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at PracPoly. I'm Dave Spencer. Have a great week.